Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast Series. I have Dr. Christopher Chapman. He's an assistant professor of medicine, uh, director of uh, bariatric and metabolic endoscopy, uh, Department of Medicine at University of Chicago. So, Chris, or Dr. Chapman, uh, one and the same. Thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me, what, what is your um, is your work more clinical and more research, and what does it encompass? Mm-hmm. I, I guess most of my time is really taking care of patients. Um, I'm about 80% clinical, 20% research. Um, and so a lot of my time is doing uh, endoscopic procedures. I was going to joke and say that people accuse you of jumping down their throat. But you literally <laughs> do, right? I literally do. And I jump into other areas as well from the bottom. <laughs> what, what, why the interest in, uh, in what you do? What, What's the history of it? Like, what's it been like for you in your career arc? Right, right. So I did medical school at Johns Hopkins. Um, I graduated in 2008 uh, and then returned home to Chicago, where I've been at the University of Chicago since 2008 and have been on faculty here uh, since about 2014 or so. Um, and what I do is I actually do these endoscopic procedures to help people lose weight. That's kind of my clinical niche or my subspecialty. I, I do other procedures like deal with pancreas and bile duct cancers, large colon polyps that need to be removed with special techniques. But my main interest is are doing these endoscopic procedures to help people lose weight that are struggling with obesity and other uh, obesity-related conditions. Um, so, yeah, I got what, interested what in that. Are those, um, yeah. Yeah, what, yeah. what are those procedures, by the way? Is that bariatric surgery yeah. or what is it? Right, right. So it's it's they're a little different than bariatric surgery and traditionally where you actually have these, you know, these cuts or incisions that you have on your body. Um, these are procedures that we actually use what we call the natural orifice or the lumen, where we actually uh, go in through your mouth when you're completely asleep and do these procedures on the stomach to help you lose weight. And currently there's about three procedures we're really doing to help people do that. Um, there's this one called the intragastric balloon or weight loss balloon where you actually put in a deflated uh, silicone balloon into your stomach and then you inflate it. It sits in your stomach. It's about the size of a grapefruit and you leave it in for six months and you feel full faster because you have that grapefruit in there. Um, we do another procedure called the endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty or ESG. This is where we use a suturing device to actually reduce the size of your stomach um, with sutures down to the size of a banana. And because it's so much smaller, you eat less food and you lose weight. And then the final procedure we do is something called the uh, aspiration therapy. And that's where we're actually using a device where you put it into your stomach um, from the outside. It's a tube. And then after you eat, you actually uh, 
em- open the tube and empty out your stomach. And so it actually results in less calories absorbed because you're emptying out your stomach. Um, and so these are the three procedures we're doing, which, which is different because you don't have to have these incisions. They're generally outpatient and in some of the cases completely reversible. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know in um, gastric bypass, um, I, I didn't even realize this, but I guess the exit sphincter of the stomach is not there. So you can have yeah. dumping and all kinds of problems, right? Right. Well, bypass is, you know, safe with the right patient selection and making sure you have the right patients and they're well educated about it. But um, it's probably, you know, one of the most effective options because it does reduce the size of your stomach. So you get this little gastric pouch um, that can really not, that really prevents you from overeating, but also change how you absorb nutrients. And, and so you actually change not only the amount you can eat, but also how you absorb them. And, and that results in the most uh, significant uh, weight loss. But yeah, I mean, side effects can occur. The, you know, the dumping syndrome like that can happen, or you can get these narrowings in the, in the, in the openings or leaks and stuff. Stuff like that. So it's definitely a balance of risk and benefit that each provider and patient really has to think through. And of the methods you use, is there a preferred one or like what, what are some of the variables that would tell you whether to do the sleeve versus yeah. the silicone balloon, et cetera? Right. I, I guess it, it, for me, it's really dependent upon what the patient's goals are and and how important is reversibility. So if you're really thinking that reversibility is the most thing, you really don't want something long-term done to your stomach, um, the balloon is probably the best option because once you remove that balloon, you're completely back to how you are. Um, as opposed to some of the other procedures, like the suturing procedure I do with our ESG, we used to say that that was reversal, but I don't think so, um, given a little more experience and time we've had because I think you can actually get some scarring or some, uh, you know, remodeling of your stomach. Um, and so to say you're going to be completely back to how you were is probably not true. Um, so reversibility is a key factor. And then also it's, it's about how much weight you want to lose. Like a weight loss balloon typically loses, you know, around like 10 to 12% of your body weight. So around 30 to 40 pounds. Whereas, you know, the endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty or the aspiration therapy tend to lose, you know, around 15 to 20%, so more in that 40 to 60 pound range. And so combining what their goals are in terms of their weight loss and then also, uh, you know, you know their, their key on reversibility, um, those are really the, the main factors. But all these tools are good, what I would say, jump-starting tools for those people that are yo-yoing back and forth and really looking to, you know, kind of um, get something hopefully a little more durable. Is there ever without, going, without going all the way to surgery, yeah, yeah. Right. I don't know. A strange idea when you talked about the uh, the sleeve. Has mm-hmm. anyone ever created two stomachs? You know that you have one sphincter that empties into both, but then you have two mm-hmm. that run parallel and then they converge again. Or is that just craziness? <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, it's definitely creative. <laughs> and so, I think the biggest issue is. I mean, dumping syndrome happens, but it's it's relatively rare. And so I think the the thing that people are doing now um, is really just creating this surgical sleeve where it's basically a long tube-like stomach. That's the most popular procedure. About you know 60 to 70 percent of all surgeries are that now. And you know, but still, even if you think about that, only one to two percent of patients who are eligible for bariatric surgery are getting it. So that means 98 to 99 percent of patients aren't getting surgery. So I think they're still on the hunt for a new, a new thing. So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, coming up with some different ideas is definitely warranted, but I'm not aware of any 
two two stomach option, yeah. Well, I guess the reason I ask is that um, I know people's stomachs can be shaped differently. Has mm-hmm. anyone studied um, stomachs that are longer and narrower versus you know shorter and rounder? How it affects digestion and you know like when you create the sleeve, you know like you said a banana size or shape was chosen. Are there mm-hmm. other shape choices that work better for some reason? No, I've I've been inside many, many a stomach, and you can definitely see a difference between people. Um, I don't think anyone's studied, at least as far as I'm aware of, anyone that's like how you can remodel it to make it, um, you know, certain sizes and shapes, you know, uh, or whatever fruit, you know, you want, whether it's a banana or orange or something, you know. And so I'm not aware of that. But the thing is, is that a lot of times the surgical options are really just a balance of safety because we know that it's actually where they do a surgical resection or where we do the endoscopic suturing. It's a relatively safe option. Um, and so there are certain, you know, techniques we have to do to, to balance safety to not, you know, injure important structures, um, including the blood supply. Are there any new protocols that are in the works that maybe aren't in use yet that you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, we're always trying to innovate in this space, and and we're in the, we just finished enrolling uh, our in a clinical trial with a new balloon that is uh, adjustable, um, so I meaning you can go up or down on the volume. So one of the issues with balloons is that even though it stays in for six months, after three months, people hit this weight loss plateau and they kind of stop losing. This new balloon can actually allow you to go up on the volume and kind of give you like a second hit to help you lose additional weight. Um, or if you're intolerant and that happens in about seven to 10% of patients where they can't even just tolerate the balloon because they have too many side effects, you can actually go down on the volume and theoretically um, make it a little more tolerable. So this ability to adjust the balloons, it's going to be a new one coming out. Um, and we showed really good weight loss with that, about 15% total body weight loss in, in term in one, in at, at the end of one year, I think. So, I mean, very good outcomes so can, from that. Uh, you can change the size of the balloon as needed. You mean? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's a new one. There's a new one coming out too that is um, completely endoscopy free. So you basically you swallow this little capsule has a cord on it. It goes into your stomach and then you fill it up um, with fluid. You release it and then after about four months, it dissolves on its own. So it completely passes out. So you don't have to ever go in for a scope um, or endoscopy. And so that's going to be coming out soon. That's in clinical trials. Um, there are some new ones that are more focused on diabetes that are coming out where you actually kind of do a superficial, um, you know, uh, treatment uh, on the on the small intestine. That's going to want to be really targeting people with diabetes and 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 liver uh, fatty infiltration of the liver, or what we call NASH. Um, so there's a lot of stuff coming now um, that are going to be really moving towards these more minimally invasive and endoscopic options for sure. What are some of the side effects of the balloon? Like what happens to people on one in life? Yeah. Yeah, so most people, when they get the balloon, that first week can be a little rough. Um, they can typically get symptoms such as, you know, nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramping, um, and you can get, uh, you know, belching, burping, bad breath. Some people get, you know, constipation. Some people get diarrhea. But the vast majority of symptoms are really nausea and a little bit of vomiting um, and uh, some abdominal cramping that tends to last about two or three days and up to a week. Um, and they tend to be go away after that. Um, 
with the balloon, there are some risks long-term, like they can cause ulcers in your stomach about 5% of the time. The balloon could leak sometimes 1%. So we usually put this blue dye into the, um, into the fluid we fill the balloon with so that if you, uh, if it leaks, you actually start peeing green. And I always tell the patients, if you start peeing like the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, you should uh, let us know because blue plus yellow equals equals green. So that's a sign that we're looking for. Um, do we do have. Does that mean if that happens? That means the balloon's leaking. It's leaking. So like some of the fluid that that you fill in the balloon is leaked out. Um, that happens so rarely, less than one percent. So um, you know, we rarely, rarely see that, but it, it can happen. Um, and then, I don't know if you're aware, but the FDA put out a press release in 2018 that there was some patients who had, like passed away with a balloon in them, and um, so that led to led to a lot of resistance and concern, and, and rightfully so. But if you look at the data, it's it's very safe. The mortality is something like 0.03% with a balloon, which is similar to a colonoscopy. So I, I think yeah, I think there's risks with any procedure, but um, I do think it's really really low. Well, what's been the fallout from gastric bypass? I mean, I would think that uh, that's been a lot more than the balloon complications. Right. I, I think the rate of complications is, is definitely higher with surgery. Um, you know, in, in the proper hands, we're talking still a low rate, like 5% of having, you know, complications from surgery. And the mortality is very, very low as well if you go to appropriate places and get appropriate follow-up care. You know, so I think it's really safe. But there's definitely probably more invasiveness, more risk. And the question is really just a balance of how much weight do you want to lose? Because if you want to lose 100 plus pounds, gastric bypass or a sleeve gastrectomy or surgical sleeve is much more likely to achieve that, you know, with the balloon that's kind of averaging about 30 pounds. So that's why we kind of really need to decide what's the best procedure for you, depending on what your starting weight and what your goals are um, and your risk tolerance. So those are kind of all the factors that come into play. And so I see a lot of patients who have BMIs that are over 50 or even sometimes 60 or more. And I tell them that surgery is probably the best option for them. And, and I would try to steer them into one of my surgical colleagues because, you know, knowing what the results are, um, you know, just trying to make sure they achieve the goals that they want and try to get as healthy as possible. Why, why does the balloon seem to top out at 30 pounds of weight loss? Does the stomach accommodate and stretch more when people eat or like what's happened? I think that's definitely a part of it. I, I do think you become from what I've seen, you have less symptoms as time time goes on. So I do think there is some uh, accommodation uh, that uh, come, it comes of that. So you don't have some of the same symptoms that you initially had. And, and still a lot of it is, you know, a lot of patients, you have to be, make sure they adhere to the diet because a lot of people are really motivated for the three months after first three months after an intervention, you know, but old habits uh, creep back in, you know, and, and it's really hard for these behavior modifications. So that's why I think having a GI psychologist or someone who can help with this behavioral modifications is such a key part because everyone stays motivated from month one, you know, look at January, how fill the fill the gyms are, right? How does February look? How does March look? And and it's similar for these type of procedures. Um that old habits kind of creep back in and, and that's one of the main things that we need to try to focus on. Um has anyone looked at what happens to the microbiome, for instance, of the gut when people have a balloon in them or these other interventions? I know with gastric bypass there's been some studies, but uh anything with these interventions? 
they haven't yet, but we're actually enrolling patients in that right now for that same exact studies because we're actually really, really excited this because some of our, um, you know, basic science colleagues have done uh, some work with uh, uh, the microbiome and in terms of uh, weight management as well as, you know, cholesterol and, and uh, lipid synthesis and working on some of these things. And what we're really excited are is are what we're really excited about is actually looking how these procedures can affect the microbiome because we really think that there's actually the whole microbiome field is really has been up to this day really focusing on colon bacteria and what the researchers here at the University of Chicago have shown that is that actually there are small bowel bacteria that are controlling a lot more of what we think some of these metabolic parameters because there yes there's there's a lot less you know, bacteria in the small bowel, but that's where all the metabolism is really happening. The colon is really just a water retention system, you know, and there are, it's there to help you get dehydrated. That's why when people have their colon removed, there's an adjustment period, but they don't change their absorption of nutrients. You know, it just changes their water absorption. And and so what we've shown, um, or um, what our colleagues have shown, Dr. Eugene Chang has shown is that with actually manipulating our, with the small bowel, you can actually get microbiome changes that are probably going to be more directly affecting your metabolism. And so what we're doing now is recruiting patients and doing samplings of the small bowel, completely forgetting the colon right now and focusing on what are the changes pre and then post after some of these endoscopic procedures and even bariatric surgery as well. And so I think what I'm really excited about is really trying to see what are the things that are changing in the small bowel microbiome. And Dr. Chang's work has even shown that there are actually metabolites that are changing. So if we can figure out what these bacteria are, what kind of these metabolites they're producing, and then re, re, they've already shown it in mice and other animal models. We just have to prove it in humans, and that's what we're doing right now. Okay. When you say the small bowel, do you mean the small intestine or what yeah, area? Yeah, right. Exactly. So, you know, the GI tract, we usually begin with the esophagus and then the stomach. And then the first entry point out of the stomach is the small intestine, which is really broken down um, into three different um, components. There's the duodenum, the uh, the the jejunum and the ileum. And then after the ileum, it then enters the colon, you know. But we're talking about, you know, roughly 20 feet of, you know, small bowel and, and that's so it's very long and torturous and winding um, and people forget that that microbiome can play that there is a microbiome in the small bowel just because it's so much drastically less than the colon. Well how do you even get in there to sample? So we go through your mouth um, with the endoscope then we can advance through the stomach and then once we get through the stomach the scopes are long enough to get into the duodenum and sometimes I actually use a, a pediatric colon scope um, to actually go deeper into the second part or called the jejunum. So what we're doing is we're sampling the, the first part, the duodenum, and the second part, the jejunum, because we think there may be even difference between those two sites. So what are you seeing from the uh, the microbiome of the small intestine? What does it look like, you know, differently from the, the colon, from the large intestine? Well, the the diversity is definitely different. And it, so there's just significantly less diversity um, with it. And there's also, you know, just less number, um, number of uh, small bowel microbiome, like in terms of the the uh, amount of bacteria. Right. It's good that you're even looking there because most people just say, ah, oh, it's all in the gut, and, you know, in the meaning of the colon. And even within the colon, 
I, I would think it's just the proximal colon, you know, right near the where everything empties out. The sigmoid colon is where they're sampling from. I don't mm. know if anyone's even sampling right near the like the ileocecal valve where it, it enters into the colon, you know, near the appendix. Right. But, yeah. right. And, and I think that's what I think a lot of people looking about where you're sampling is going to be so important as we move forward with this studies of the microbiome because, you know, we know that if people just look at, you know, looking at the stool, that doesn't necessarily match what's going on in the lining of the mucosa uh, of the colon or other areas of the bowel. So just because you see it in the stool doesn't mean that's what's actually involving or talking to your body, which is in the mucosal lining. And we also know clearly that the right and the left colon are actually pretty different from each other in terms of the, the pathologies they can get. And uh, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if we do see some differences there, I think. Um, but our focus is really trying to moving, you know, that uh, looking at these small, bi small bowel microbes because, you know, we really think that these are going to really be the ones that really regulate digestion and absorption of uh, of lipids. Um, and so, because some of that prelim work that I was talking about with Dr. Chang and his group, they actually took these mice that didn't have any microbes in them at all. They're currently, you know, totally germ-free. And, you know, they they when they fed them a high-fat diet, they couldn't absorb any of it. They didn't gain weight. You know, they just spilled this lipids into their stool. You know, but when they're, um, they uh, actually did do some of these other mice, they actually um, showed that they actually grew certain microbes, different ones that were, became more prominent, and those had a specific impact on the fat absorption. Um, so it's pretty interesting that you can see that, you know, the diet can change your small bowel microbiome and, and that it also affects how you absorb it. Well, since you do a lot of procedures, like you said, you, you've been inside a lot of stomachs. You see that they're not all shaped the same. Like mm -hmm. How much diversity do you see in the size and shape and orientation of our inner tubing, essentially? The, most of it, you know, for the small intestine is pretty straightforward. You know, it's kind of pretty standard what you're going to see with the small intestine. Um, there's very there's certain landmarks that you can really recognize and kind of give it a good understanding of where you are. That's pretty pretty standard. Um, the esophagus also tends to be very standard as well too. There's definitely I think probably a little bit more diversity in patients' stomachs as opposed to these other organs um, in terms of. Uh, what I call anatomic variants, um, but uh, it, it is the beautiful thing that it's everyone's really much how different they are on the outside are actually pretty similarly designed on the inside. Have you seen any strange morphologies, you know, when you've been in a patient? <laughs> I, uh, um, I've definitely seen some strange things. Um, you know, uh, the usually it's foreign bodies are the the thing that we notice the most being a little bit atypical. You know, I've seen, uh, you know, sometimes you're doing a colonoscopy and then you find, uh, I found a quarter in a patient, you know, and she said, you know, I was had some pills and some change in, in next to my bed and I woke up in the middle of the night and took some pills and uh, then I woke up and we had the colonoscopy and then when I get in there and I'm like, well, I don't think you had the pills, unfortunately. I think you had the jar with the coins in it because I found a few pennies and quarters in your in your colon, actually. Um, yeah, so that can definitely happen. Um, so other patients, so when they have psychological illness, will swallow things sometimes inappropriately. So you have to remove out, um, you know, tacks, pen caps, other things like that, other foreign bodies. Um, other bone, bones from animals are pretty common to get stuck as well, too. So just be careful okay. when you're having fish. 
Yeah, the bones, are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting. Um, so yeah. what do you see as the, uh, the future of, um, you know, the type of interventions you're doing, you know, the next five right. to 10 years? I mean, right. I kind of asked this already, but, you know, less, less burden on the patient, but anything really novel that, uh, that's coming. Yeah. I, I, I think the, the future is, is bright for weight management with endoscopy because the problem is just such a growing problem. And then there was a recent study in the New England Journal which said that by 2030, that one in two adults are going to be obese. That means every other person you meet is going to be obese. And and we know that, again, only one to 2% of patients are electing for probably the most effective option, which is bariatric surgery. And so there is a we have a growing problem. We don't have the ideal solution. And I think that's where people are seeing a lot of endoscopy being, you know, the role that it can fit in. Um, and the issue is, is that uh, we need to show these new procedures are effective. We need to show them that they're durable and we could sh need to show that they're actually uh, effective at reducing complications from weight issues. And, and, and that's what we're doing right now with our studies. And, you know, we're in this multi-center trial right now with the Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins, some of the Harvard hospitals trying to do just that. But I think once we do, we're going to start seeing that these procedures become more mainstream because the biggest issue right now is that insurances aren't covering a lot of these endoscopic procedures I'm doing. So the access is really limited to those patients who can do a self-payment and that could be thousands of dollars. And that's not necessarily fair for a lot of patients who are actually struggling with their weight and are on, um, you know, public aid and they can't get these procedures. And so I'm hopeful that once we show some benefit to it and then show it to the insurance companies that indeed then we'll get some coverage and be able to open these procedures up to more and more people um, who otherwise wouldn't have access. And, um, you know, the endoscopical procedures aren't just for weight loss, but do you do much where these uh, these procedures are looking for other things that like you talked about removing, you know, difficult polyps, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what else can you accomplish with the procedures you use. Yeah. So my training in, in the background is really in interventional endoscopy or um, what we call advanced endoscopy. And these are procedures that we do that are generally therapeutic um, in nature. So we do remove uh, big polyps uh, in the colon or in the stomach or anywhere else in the GI tract. Um, we uh, treat other diseases of the esophagus, such as achalasia, where we, you basically can't swallow um, and you have to do this procedure called a poem where you actually make a little incision in the muscle to open it up and people can swallow again. Um, or we, we do a lot of complex strictures where you get these kind of narrowings in the esophagus um, and they need to be stretched out to help people eat again. And there's nothing more gratifying when you have someone tell you that they can eat again. It, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how much a role food plays um, and once you can't have access to it, you know, that once you're able to rebring it back into patients, it, it makes a big difference in their life. Um, I also do procedures like endoscopic ultrasound or ERCP, um, where we actually are doing stuff with the pancreas and the bile duct, like removing stones, um, treating uh, and diagnosing pancreatic cancers and um, bile duct cancers. And, you know, one of the things that we're really excited about is we were one of the first studies sites to actually um, sample blood you know, from a deep uh, uh, mesenteric vein uh, called the portal vein in patients with pancreatic cancer and showed that they have increased circulating tumor cells um, 
in that area as opposed to the peripheral blood because everyone's very excited looking for these liquid biopsies. But the problem with pancreatic cancer is that when you just draw blood from a vein from your arm, you don't get any samples and and you don't you can't tell what's going on. Um, but now we showed that you can actually get samples from the, a deep internal vein and you actually get way more material. And we hope this is going to help better triage patients with pancreatic cancer. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Just a quick question about the polyps. What, uh, mm -hmm. what are the polyps composed of, whether they have it in the colon or the stomach, and why do you think that they form? Yeah, so polyps in the colon um, are, are, there's like a wide variety. So the polyps that I deal with, they are generally what we consider large polyps, and they tend to be over you know, 10, millimeters in si 10 millimeters in size. And um, we think that there's probably a genetic reason that, you know, these things develop that as you get older, um, that you're more likely to have some of these uh, genetic kind of, you know, mutations develop, and then you're more likely to get some of these larger polyps. We do know that there's a progression of certain mutations as you move along this pathway towards colon cancer. So um, as these polyps develop, we think they actually either gain additional mutations or have some key mutations that lead to the growth of these things that eventually become cancer. And, and so what our goal is what I do is try to identify these very high-risk polyps and try to remove them before they become cancer. Um, and in certain cases, we can remove early cancers that have already developed, but if they are more progressed, then they go to surgery. But I do think that there is some genetic component to it. And I think there's some degree of if, if you have ongoing inflammation, that it predisposes developing cancer too. Like say, for example, you have something called inflammatory bowel disease, where you have this constant inflammation going on in your colon, that can actually increase your risk of developing cancer. Um, and uh, so that's why we really are focused on reducing the amount of inflammation in the colon if you have some of those conditions. Hmm. Well, very good. Um, you said a lot of these uh, are not covered by insurance, so they're self-pay. Um, Mm -hmm. Where can people, you know, if people suspect that they have a problem, I mean, what's a, what kind of practitioner should they, should they just see a gastroenterologist or are these even more specialized um, treatments that very few people do? Like what's the, mm -hmm. what does it look like? So I guess, so the, to clarify, I, I think the, the weight loss procedures that we're doing that are endoscopic, those tend to be self-pay, um, meaning like oh, the intragastric yeah. balloon or the endoscopic sleeve um, procedure. Um, but our standard colonoscopy, if you have a colon problem or upper like esophagus problem, you know, some of those are actually uh, more likely to be covered by our insurance. Uh, but as we get to more of these kind of novel experimental procedures, that's a hard line for us um, because we want to provide these uh, procedures, but sometimes they're not covered by insurance. And like that, for example, that procedure I talked about called POEM, where you actually have this condition called achalasia, we have a great minimally invasive option for it, but that tends to not be covered by insurance. And we've actually had, you know, issues where getting patients access to that level of care can be very, very challenging, even despite having, you know, peer-to-peer -peer authorizations with insurance company or having, um, sending letters and sending the literature, and even still it doesn't get covered. But for general conditions that we see in interventional endoscopy, for the most part, dealing with like bile duct stones, you know, stuff with the pancreas, that tends to get covered by the insurance companies. Um, and so that's something that, you know, having a good primary care doctor and then having a, a good general, good gastroenterologist can help make sure that you're steered in the right direction. Well, very good. Uh, how can people find out more about uh, your work in particular? 
Yeah, so if people are interested, they can um, check uh, our website out, you know, at the University of Chicago uh, Medicine. Uh, we have a brand new website that we're, <laughs> we're proud of, and um, you can actually uh, go to www.uchicagomedicine.org. Um, if you search endoscopic bariatrics or endoscopy and bariatrics, you'll find a lot more of what I do, or just uh, search endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty and and Dr. Christopher Chapman, and it will pop up, and um, we can kind of go from there. That's great. Well, Dr. Chapman, thanks for coming, and I appreciate your time talking about all this. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 